I wanted to start this afternoon with a question. Sometimes that's a good way to get going. And the question I have for you specifically is, what's your number one desire for yourself? Just take a moment to think about that. If I was to pass the microphone around, which I'm not going to do, but if I was to pass the microphone around, would you be honest and would you share with us, what would it be that you'd share with us that is your number one desire for yourself? If I was to guess at what we would hear, there'd probably be a variety of things in the room, but they'd probably fall under banners or into categories, several categories that we'd have. Uh, maybe things like success or happiness, maybe health or comfort or contentment. Those would kind of be, I think, some of the categories or the bins that the things that we'd say would fall into. So maybe a, a good follow-up question to that is this. Have you ever stopped to consider that if there is a God, what is his number one desire for you? Now I say if there is a God, because I, I, week in, week out, I don't want to make an assumption that we all walk in with the same posture of belief that, hey, I believe there's a God and, you know, Jesus is his son and I'm saved for Jesus. Like, I, I want to keep the conversation open, but... Let's just stop and think about that. If there is a God, let's entertain this thought. What is his number one desire for me? I don't know why, how you answer that question, but I do have a thought written down here by a guy named J.R. Packer, who's a guy who's a theologian and a, and a thinker and a, and a Christian, and he says this, and I think this is interesting to start out this conversation today. It is extraordinary... How little the New Testament says about God's interest in our success by comparison with the enormous amount that it says about God's interest in our holiness, our maturity in Christ, our growth into the fullness of his image. He goes on later to say this, God's priority in all his dealings with us is to make us holy. So arguably, I agree with J.R. Packer here, arguably God's number one desire for you and me is not comfort, it's not success, it's not uh, contentment, although some of those things can be good things. His ultimate desire for us is holiness. We see this actually all throughout the Bible. I could pick scripture after scripture. Let me just pick on one. 1 Peter 1.16. It quotes the Old Testament. So here we are, hitting New Testament and Old Testament, the scope of the scriptures, and what it simply says there in 1 Peter 1.16, quoting Leviticus 11, is, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So what is being holy? It's a word we throw around in church. What does it actually mean? Holy, again, borrowing from J.O. Packer, he says this, means separated and set apart for God, consecrated and made over to him. I'll read that again. Holy means separated and set apart for God, consecrated and made over for Him. Now, you may hear that and be like, okay, that's some churchy language. Uh, and it may sound a little foreign, like consecrated, set apart. Like, what does all that mean? And as I was thinking about that, those words do seem a little abstract maybe to us, but they wouldn't actually, these thoughts and ideas wouldn't have sounded very abstract to somebody who was a, a Jew in biblical times. Because it really describes a sacrificial lamb, 
Did you know that the Jews, uh, before Jesus came along, they would take a lamb and they would, uh, they would pull it apart from the rest of the flock, an unblemished lamb. They would separate it, set it apart, and they would consecrate, set it apart for worship to God. And that's basically what being holy means. It means being pulled apart and set up for worship to God. And so this idea of sacrifice and holiness, they kind of blend together. It shouldn't surprise us that there's scriptures like Romans 12.1, which says, present your bodies as what? You guys have heard this. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, God's desire is for us to be holy, separated from the sins and the stains of the world and set apart for him. And there's a process by which this happens. And the process of increasing in holiness has a name and it's called sanctification. Okay? Sanctification. That's a very, I know, churchy word, but it's the word that describes what we're talking about today. Sanctification. Now, to give us a little bit of context for this word sanctification and how we're coming to it, Let's grab a little bit of context from last week. You see, sanctification has a non-identical twin called justification. We talked about this justification last week out of Romans chapter 5. And uh, it, it's, it's a really like, again, these are churchy words, but they're really helpful because they contain a lot of truth in them. There's actually another sibling to these two words. So let's just... Let's just kind of back up here for a second before we jump into sanctification and talk about these words in context. There's three words in Christian language that describe the process of change that we go through. The first is justification. And we talked about that last week. Justification is the moment of belief and change. It's when we believe who God is and what he's done for us. It's when um, through Jesus, we talked about this last week, we are completely cleansed of our sins. But remember, that's not all. We receive the righteousness of Christ. It's a dual action thing. Our sins are given to Christ and Christ gives us his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see a broken, uh, pitiful human being. No, he sees somebody who is washed of their sins and also who has the righteousness of his dearly loved son. So that's justification. Sanctification is the second term, and it's a term that we're going to look at today. It basically is the in-between bit between justification and glorification. That's the third term. So you've got justification, sanctification, and glorification. I know these are a lot of big terms, but stick with me. Glorification is when Christ returns and Christians are given new bodies. It's the final step in towards perfection, okay? So don't get hung up by these terms. They all are helpful in that they all describe the process of change that a Christian goes through. Justification in particular is helpful in understanding sanctification because sanctification comes after justification. There are many ways to consider justification. One way that Jesus talked about it is when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who was a religious leader, he talked about this idea of rebirth, of being, as some Christians put it, born again. Have you guys heard that phrase before? Being born again. It's this idea that you die to your sins, you die to your (coughs) sinfulness, and you're raised to this new life that God has for you. So this thought of death and rebirth that we hear in John 3 
And this idea of justification is also found in Romans chapter 6. So I'm going to ask you to turn there. So we're going to turn to Romans chapter 6. Now, it's just interesting to note that in Romans 5, where we were last week, there's a couple of references to this term justification. And it shouldn't surprise us that in the next chapter is where it talks about sanctification. Again, justification, being made right with God, getting the perfection of Christ. That then leads into the process of change as a Christian, which is sanctification. So Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to, and we're just going to start out in verse 11. Romans 6, verse 11. It says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What it's saying here is we've got to consider ourselves dead to sin. There is part of us when when we become a Christian that we die to who we were, the former way of life. And then it says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are changed. We are different people. We're not the same anymore. We've gone through this process of death and new life, this process of rebirth, or even one of the other ways that we see this being kind of symbolized is through baptism. When somebody's baptized, we say, you know, you're buried, your sins are buried and you're raised to walk in a new life. That is the process of change, and it has to happen before sanctification. It's the prequel, if you would, to sanctification. Now, something interesting happens at that moment. We didn't touch on this last week. There's a lot to justification that we didn't get to get to. But something interesting to note, to flag with you, is that the, uh, that the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us at that moment. When we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, the Holy Spirit comes and mysteriously lives inside of us. The Holy Spirit is God. So God is one, but there are three persons. There's God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we're told, this is a very mysterious thing, but His Spirit comes and lives inside of us. Ephesians 1.13 says this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that is, our conversion, was sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason that I'm bringing this idea of the Holy Spirit coming and, and dwelling inside of us is because the Holy Spirit is described by Jesus as what? The counselor. And what a counselor, what the counselor, the Holy Spirit does, is counsels us away from sin and towards righteousness. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, what he does is he lives inside of us and leads us and, and, and encourages us towards the new life that we've been given to pull us away from the sins that still want to pull us back to the old way of living. The Holy Spirit, you see, plays a very active role in our sanctification. We receive him at our justification, but he plays an active role in our sanctification. If we read further into Romans 6, we're going to get a bit more of a picture of what sanctification is. I feel like we're kind of talking around sanctification. We are going to get into the nuts and bolts of what it really means. So let's read on here in Romans chapter 6. And just scoop down to me with me to verse 17. The whole chapter is really worth a read, by the way. But we're going to read on at verse 17. It says, But thanks be to God 
that you who were once slaves to sin, that is, those before justification, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because you're natural of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. There's that word, sanctification. So what we see in this text is interesting. There's a few things just to point out. It talks about this idea of members. You may have heard that. It says, present your members. That's a, okay, what, what does that mean? It's basically saying, present all your body, as in your limbs, your, your fingers, your toes, like all that you are, are you going to give to God? So don't get confused by that. It's basically saying your body or your being, present all of it, your members, to God. Another interesting thing is this line up in the first part in verse 17, where it talks about, you were once slaves of sin, but you have become, I like this, obedient from the heart. You see, what happens at that moment of conversion is our heart is changed. Our heart of sin, our heart that is described in the Bible sometimes as a heart of stone, is made alive in Christ. We are changed. We're moved, we're moved to, to being obedient from the heart. This is a heart change that we're talking about at that moment of conversion. Another thing that you may have noticed in this passage is this idea of slavery. Did you pick up on that as we read through it? It's talking about there about how pre-justification, we're slaves to sin, and then post-justification, we are slaves of righteousness. And that phrase, slaves of or slaves to righteousness, pops up twice in the passage. Now, that uh, isn't... What's interesting about this is that there isn't a third option. It doesn't say, hey, you're, you can be a slave of sin, or you can be a slave of righteousness, or you can just do whatever you want. Like, it is, oh, you can just be free to do what you want, be who you want to be. No, it's one or the other. You're either a slave of sin, or you're a slave of righteousness. Now, it's kind of interesting language, and Paul says, hey, I'm using words because of our limitation to try and describe this. I think he's trying to say, hey, this is a bit of a funny way of thinking about it, but you're a slave of righteousness. What is a slave? A slave is someone under the authority or ownership of someone or something else. And so what it's saying when it says we're slaves of righteousness, we are under the authority or the ownership of righteousness. That is holiness, perfection. Verse 19 says, as we present our bodies as slaves to righteousness, that we are sanctified. If we continue to read Romans 6 further down, what we see is that this slavery of, to righteousness, and it's not a, a negative slavery, by the way. This is meant to be in a positive sense. Slave, slavery to sin, yeah, that's negative. But slavery to righteousness, that's a good thing. And he says as you go on that journey of being slave to righteousness, that what you're going to actually see is this progression. It leads to sanctification, which leads to eternal life. And all of this is found under the banner of Jesus' work in our lives. I want you to read it with me. It's verse 22. You'll see that progression. So verse 22, 
And then a very famous verse, verse 23, is what we'll read. It says, but now that you have been set free from sin, that is, you have been justified, and have become slaves of God, same thought, slaves of righteousness, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's interesting, these contrasting thoughts here. This idea of being a slave to sin, it's basically saying there's one end to that, and that's death. The other end to being a slave to righteousness is eternal life. Eternal life that's found in and through Jesus and Jesus alone. And so when our lives are radically changed and we are saved, we must remember that unlike the instantaneous change of our justification, which happens in a moment, our sanctification is a lifelong process. Justification, let's just be clear here, justification is instantaneous. When, when the Spirit enables me to believe and I say, yes, God, I need you, that is an instant change that happens. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us like we've talked about. But sanctification is a lifelong process. As long as you and I have breath in our lungs, we are in the process of sanctification. When you die and you're a Christian or Jesus comes back and you're a Christian, your sanctification is complete. That's when it ends. It's very different. That's why they're not identical twins, right? Like, they're, they're different. So maybe to help us summate what we're talking about here, we could define, we've already said that, yeah, sanctification is the process of becoming holy. But another thing that we could say is that sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus. Why do I say like Jesus? Well, I say that because Jesus is holiness personified. He was the ultimate slave to righteousness. If you want to know what it looks like to live as a slave of righteousness or to be holy, you don't need to look any further than Jesus. Romans 8, 29, there's multiple scriptures that talk to Jesus as being the goal of the image that we're being conformed to. Romans 8, 29, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. That conforming is the work, the process of sanctification. Here's another term that's very similar. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says this, And we all, with unveiled face, that is, those who are Christians, who have had the veil of sin taken away, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. So sanctification is this process over a lifetime of looking more and more like Jesus. So a question that's good and worth asking at this point is who's responsible for this change? Obviously, Jesus does this justifying, but this sanctifying, is that something that God does or is that something that I do? Is that something that we're responsible for? Who's the one who's responsible for taking care of this change? One of the ways that some theologians kind of talk about this, and I think this is helpful, is to say that sanctification has both active and passive elements to it. Now, I need you to just tease this out with me a little bit, okay? It, 
It's a cooperative. Sanctification is a cooperative process of both God and ourselves working for change. And I'm careful to say that word working there. You see, part of my sanctification requires me to be passive as God works. To just be like, okay, God, do your work. But there's also a part of my sanctification that requires me to be active, to be involved in the work that God's doing. And herein lies one of the huge problems inside of Christianity. The problem is this, is that we want to believe that it's all about being active or that it's all about being passive. And both of those are going to lead us in a wrong direction. You see, if I'm thinking that my, my sanctification is about being active in what's going on, I may say or think something like this, the harder I strive towards holiness, the more God loves me. You probably wouldn't ever say that with your mouth, but you may certainly think that with your heart or display that with your actions. The other side of the coin is to be super passive and think that it's all about being passive. Somebody who's in that sort of mindset would say something like this, oh man, I've just got to let go and let God. Have you guys ever heard that phrase before? It's horrible. I'm just going to let go and let God. Now, I, I get that there's some sweet sentiment to some of it, but if that's our posture for life, that's a problem. You see, what we're, we're talking around here with this active and passive things is that on the road to sanctification, it seems like there's two ditches that we tend to fall into. One ditch is called legalism, and the other ditch is called license. The ditch of legalism is basically, I do this, 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 and this, and man, I am growing, and I'm changing, and I'm for the better, and God's going to like me more. And the other side is just like, hey, God's got it. Grace abounds. I don't have to do anything. Just waiting for heaven. Neither of these postures are helpful. Neither of these are good. What's the answer to the conundrum of careering off into one of these ditches? Well, the key to these problems actually is in the word and the idea of the Christian faith, which is the thing we talked about last week, the gospel. The gospel is the good news of who God is and what God has done and what God is doing. It's the good news that Jesus is at the center of the whole story, that he's active and he has saved us and he's working towards our shaping into his image. You see, the gospel, and this was just a huge thing for me to come to terms with, the gospel is not just for our justification, it is also for our sanctification. And let me lose the churchy words to help you understand this. The gospel is not only for our saving, it's also for our shaping. And for the longest term, time as somebody growing up in the church, I had the belief that the gospel was the thing that you know Jesus did way back when to help me be okay with him, and now the rest was up to me. I really appreciate this thought that Tim Keller wrote in an article. He says this, We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced, in quotes. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths, but rather it is more like a hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not the ABCs, but the A2Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. 
We are not justified by the gospel and then sanctified by obedience. That's what I needed to hear. Rather, the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power to take us through every barrier. So what he's saying, and I absolutely agree with, is that the gospel is for our addictions. The gospel is for our anger. The gospel is for our inability to handle our finances. The gospel is for the broken parts of our marriages. Our messed up parenting. Our poor relationship with our parents. I can list out thing after thing after thing, but what I'm trying to say is that every broken part in us, even as Christians, is a gospel flag waving and saying, hey, I need help here. And the solution to that is who God is, what he has done, and what he is doing. Now, you may be sitting there and saying, well, how's that true, Holly, like in a practical sense? You're saying the gospel is what my marriage needs or the gospel is what my parenting meant, whatever. How is that true? Well, there's three things I'd like for us to consider that the gospel does. And I say this also just noting with you that we could go on and on and on now talking about practical implications of the gospel. And we're not going to do that this afternoon, but... In a few months, we're going to come back and revisit this, and we're going to go into this in more detail. But just for now, I want to point out three things to consider that the gospel does in helping us in our sanctification. We talked earlier about these ditches that we can fall into of legalism and license. Listen to this. The gospel frees us from the weight of legalism. You see, legalism is a crushing weight. It's the impulse to perform to impress God. It's the lie that God loves you based on your merit. We may look to our morals, our morality. We may look to our acts of service, the things we've done for God. And we're saying, hey God, look at this. I measure up because of this. And what the gospel does is it frees us from the shackles of legalism. How so? Well, there's scriptures that speak specifically to this. One is Romans 8, verse 1. You may be familiar with this one. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is like taking a gospel pair of scissors and cutting the weight of legalism. There's no condemnation. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Again, it's like a pair of gospel students coming through and cutting the lies of legalism. So when you're tempted to believe that God loves you more or less due to your performance, we can apply these truths, we can preach these truths to ourselves. Legalism is an interesting thing. Because it tends to either inflate us or deflate us. You see, if if you've got this legalistic bar to say, if I do these things, God loves me. And then you look at it and you're like, but I'm not measuring up. That crushes you. That deflates you. 
And to a problem like that, if that's what's going on in your life, you can preach this scripture to yourself. You can pray this scripture over yourself because what it says here is there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. God, I want to believe, this is what it would sound like, God, I want to believe that I have to do all these things to impress you, but you say in your word that there's no condemnation. You love me. It isn't about me measuring up. You've already done everything on the cross. That's preaching the gospel to ourselves when we feel like we're getting crushed by legalism. Conversely, if, if, if we think the bar is here and we're jumping over it, we're succeeding, hey, here's, here's what I need to do, and man, I'm, I'm hitting it. I'm doing all the things that I need to impress God. We can preach the other verse to ourselves. Ephesians 2.8, for you are saved by grace. Sorry, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. God, I want to believe that it's all these things that I'm doing. Maybe my, my Bible reading or my church attendance or whatever it may be. But ultimately, that's not true. We can preach these truths to ourselves. So the gospel frees us from the weight of legalism. The second thing, the gospel motivates us away from license. You see, license is this thought that, yeah, I can just let God handle it. He's got it. I don't really need to do anything. I don't really need to change. There's another name for it. It's called being lazy. We're not called to be lazy or stagnant as Christians. How does a stagnant pond end up becoming? It's gross, right? It festers. It's not good. It's not designed. A body of water is yucky when, it, when it's like that. And much in the same way, like as Christians, we're not called to just pray a prayer and then sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. If that's the case, our hearts and our minds, they fester. Especially as we allow whatever to come into our thinking. Maybe it's the things that we're watching, the things that we're listening to, the things that we're saying out of our mouths. They're not honoring to God. They're not walking us down a path of holiness. And if that's the case, we need to, again, preach the gospel to ourselves to remind us not to be lazy, to not, be, to not take license to just say, God's grace has got it. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says this, You are not your own, verse 20, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your mind. How good is that? It's essentially saying when you're tempted to allow sin and complacency, remind yourself of who God is and what he's done. Because as you stop and think about the great cross, the great cost, sorry, of the cross, and what God has done for you to make you right with him, how should you then live? As you stop and reflect on who God is and what he's done for you, that should motivate us to say, God, I want to become more holy. I want to be careful about the things that I'm ingesting, the things that I'm thinking about. And I want to think about who I am and who I'm becoming over my lifetime. So much more we could say on this. But I'm going to move on to the third thing. The gospel empowers our sanctification. You see, the gospel is the fuel our sanctification runs on. Francis Chan says this. Through the gospel, we actually we are actually empowered. I like how he said that, actually empowered. Not sort of, but it really is true. To uproot the sin in our lives and live in a way that pleases God. 
So as we reflect on who God is and what he has done and how we fit into his story, what the gospel does is it gives us the empowerment, the means for growth and for change. There's a scripture that really kind of captures all of this, and it's in Titus chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can. It's, it's a, a number of verses. It's really rich and really good there. So Titus chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 11. This scripture so beautifully sums up a lot of what we've been saying this afternoon. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the justification piece, right? And then it goes on, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness. Training us, that's that conforming, that shaping, that sanctifying work. And worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in when? The present age. The writer, Paul here in, in Titus, isn't talking about what's going to happen in our glorification. He's talking about here and now. In the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who is zealous for good works. This scripture basically sums up the whole sermon. What he's saying there, and we see it like coming out there in verse 14 as well. He says he gave himself, that's Jesus, to redeem us from lawlessness. That's our justification. And to purify for himself. That's the process of us changing and conforming into his image a people for his own possession who is zealous for good works. So as we consider all these things, what I'd like to encourage us to think about now, and this is where it kind of hurts a little bit, because I think what we need to consider is that in our lives, in this conversation of sanctification, the proof is in the pudding, to use the phrase. And what I mean by that is, if I was to lose contact with one of you and then 20 or 30 years down the road from now we were to bump into each other and we were to catch up what would we see in each other that had happened over that period of time would you see in me and would i see in you if you're a christian somebody who's more in love with jesus and more surrendered to his will because that's absolutely what I should see. And this isn't about like, hey, being legalistic, we've got to make ourselves impress God. No, it's just simply a process of living a life exposed to the glory and goodness of God and His shaping in our lives and saying, God, yes, I'm willing to passively and actively engage with what you're doing in my life. I hope that you would see in me Someone who loves Jesus, who's surrendered to him, but is still a work in progress. It never ends, right? So with this in mind, I want for us, as we kind of finish out our time together in the Word, I want for us 
to look at our own lives and simply ask the question of, are we becoming more like Jesus? Are you becoming more like Jesus? There's only three really possible answers you can give to that. One is no, another is maybe, and a third is yes, absolutely. Or at least, yes, I think so, you know, like, yes. I don't know how you're going to answer that question. If you're not a Christian, the obvious answer is no, right? Like, are you becoming more like Jesus? No, like, I haven't made a decision to say I want that even. But if you're in that place today, I'm going to make the announcement to say, hey, now is a perfect moment to say, yes, I want to follow him. Remember what we talked about earlier. It said that there is, you can either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. The end of this, being a slave to sin is death. The end of a slave to righteousness is eternal life. And so the simple question is, which, which path do you want to be on? And so if you answer no because you're not a Christian, man, come and talk to me. I'd love to have a conversation about starting on this lifelong journey of being a God follower. It's a worthwhile journey to take. And its end is awesome, okay? So I really want to encourage you with that. The second thing to think through is that if you would say no and you're a Christian, so I'm speaking to Christians now, if you're a Christian and you and I've asked this question of are you looking more like Jesus and you're like, I'm pretty sure it's a no. Like now is a moment to just consider, okay, what's going on? And I don't mean this in a harsh way, I'm just saying, hey, really, what, what's going on? Has the Holy Spirit convicted you of something or some things and you're just ignoring it? You're like turning up the noise so you're not listening to his work and his leading in your life. What's going on? Consider that today. Don't just walk on out of here without stopping to consider, okay, I'm not seeing any change in my life. For those of you who would answer the question of, with a maybe or a yes, my encouragement to those of you is to simply say, how can we see this increase? I don't know if you've noticed this, but somebody who really loves God and is passionate about him, you know, the sort of person that you look at and you're like, man, I want to emulate them. Like, when I grow up, I want to be like them. Somebody who just loves God and, and God's passion flows out of them. I don't know if you've noticed, but they're never satisfied with where they're at with God. They want to continue to grow in his likeness and being shaped to his image. So I think this is relevant for all of us. Whether we answer as a, yeah, maybe I'm turning, I'm becoming more like Jesus, or yeah, I am. Wherever we answer this, the answer, the question that we need to ask ourselves is how can this increase? How can we live more surrendered to his life? Maybe there's some specific things that even as we finish out here in a moment, you can stop and reflect on and say, okay, maybe it's this thing in my life. Maybe it's this, this habit that I have. Maybe it's, this, uh, maybe it's this thing that I'm watching that just doesn't lead me to holiness. Maybe it's this website that I'm visiting. I don't know, like how specific I'm. Maybe it's this habit of just sleeping through my alarm clock and not getting any time with God in the morning. If that's something that you feel convicted that you need to be doing. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I've given you some examples. But I'm not, I don't want to... This is where the Holy Spirit, hopefully, even as we respond in the next few minutes, is going to be working in our hearts and in this room. What I do ask you to remember is that God's desire, His number one desire, is for us to be holy. And He doesn't desire for us to be holy 
because he's got some warped perspective on our lives and doesn't really understand us. He understands what is best for us, and what is best for us is to be holy. He designed you. He knows you better than you know yourself. So that are we open to allow him to work in our lives to bring about the holiness that he desires for us? Let's just reflect on that in these next few moments. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you have saved us through Jesus. Thank you, God, that your grace is sufficient for all our shortcomings. Even in life, as we struggle, as we wander through our lives, God, your grace is sufficient. God, thank you that you're at work even in this room. And as we take a few moments now to consider, are we becoming like Jesus? And how we can see that increase. God, may we be open and honest with you. God, speak in very practical ways to us. Sometimes we need that. And this evening we're asking for you to do that, to, to speak very practically to us. Help us to become more and more like Jesus. Thank you that one day soon we believe that we will be done with the struggle of holiness. And for those of us who believe in you, we will enter into being exactly like Jesus in, in the ways that you want for us. We look forward to that. But here and now, God, help us to live lives that only you. Thank you.